Hello, hello. We're starting off this episode a little differently to honor our guest. She's a disruptor. She's a woman who goes after what she wants and who leads the way in inspiring other women to do that too. This is going to be one sexy interview. I know it by the very nature of the brand that our guest has built and by the way she leans in and lives life fully. Abingdon Mullen is the founder and CEO of Abingdon Co, an independent female-owned watch company that designs watches for women. Okay, so what's so special about that, you may ask? Well, you'll just have to listen in to find out. But for starters, for those who aren't yet familiar with the brand, I want to share with you what the company stands for. You'll see it on the website, and then we'll meet woman herself. So here's what the company says it does. We build watches for women who do more. The women who wear Abingdon watches are more than our customers. They're our role models, supporters, and allies. They're our crew members, adventurous women who dare to push the boundaries and live life to the fullest. Together, we're a community of women who work hard and play hard. We know how an engine works or why a decompression stop is essential. We can put rounds on a target and throw an uppercut, and we want more. Well, what's not to love about that, ladies? And on that note, welcome to Resilient Entrepreneurs. This is the podcast where we speak with business owners and entrepreneurs from around the world and all walks of life in the hope that something you hear will leave your business a little richer. We're your co-hosts, Vicky and Laura from Two for One Brandy, supporting new entrepreneurs as they launch their business and offering you the tools that you need to succeed. It's why we invite experienced, successful entrepreneurs like Abingdon to share their wisdom with you on this podcast. So if you love hearing their stories, please subscribe on whichever platform you're listening or watching on right now, and you'll be notified of the next great episode. Abingdon, thank you for joining us. There is so much to talk about. Thank you so much for having me. And that was, I think, one of the best intros I have ever had on any interview that I've done. So that warmed my heart. I really appreciate you. Oh, thank you. Well, we're so glad to have you here. We're so excited for this conversation. Um, but I'd love to go back into your background a little bit to learn a little bit about who you are today. So can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and growing up? I believe you were born in England. Is that correct? So tell us a little bit about that and your family history so we understand a little bit about your journey. Sure. So uh, yes, I was born in England, but as you can tell, I have a very American accent. So I was raised in California. Um, my father's British, my mother's Mexican. So it was tea and crumpets and chorizo y huevos, you know, for breakfast. Uh, it was kind of the norm. And uh, I think that was a blessing, really, that I was afforded because what it's really done for me just as an entrepreneur is it started a foundation of having flux and just different cultures and different experiences from a multicultural household. It really set the stage for just how I view the world and uh, seeing it not so black and white or what we see on television or in other media, um, but actually experience it experiencing it. And uh, one of my favorite things, um, one of my favorite sayings is you just don't know what you don't know. And being raised in, an, in a household like that with three younger siblings, we got exposed to so many things when we went back to England, or when we met our family in California, just the the differences in, in how both sides of our family were raising us was just, uh, it was really exciting to be a part of. And um, I have to credit my parents for giving me such a wonderful childhood in that regard. Were you an entrepreneurial kid? Oh, totally. Absolutely. I was uh, probably the most competitive brownie Girl Scout that you would have ever met. I had to outsell every cookie in uh, the state of California. All the other Girl Scouts were were terrified of me, but it was still a, a lot of fun. I always, friendly competition is always a good thing. And uh, yeah, I've been an entrepreneur since probably six six years old when I sold my first Girl Scout cookie. Now, flying is a big part of your life too. So tell us how that all folds into what you do today. Well, the whole idea of the company that I started was fine. Basically, how it happened is I wanted to become a pilot. I've always wanted to be a professional pilot, and that's what I kind of figured my career would be. I learned about flying when I was in high school, and uh, 
at the time, I really had no concept of what the aviation industry offered. Um, but at my high school, there was a flight school that came in and talked to kids and told them about what it was to be a pilot. And they said two things that really stuck with me. And uh, the first thing was that you didn't have to join the military to learn how to fly. You could go to a private school. You could go to a university. There's a lot of different programs that will teach you how to fly. So I thought that was really interesting because I thought all pilots came from the military. And then the second thing that they said is that you did not have to go to the airlines after you learned how to fly. You could fly corporate. Uh, you could be a flight instructor like they were. You could fly relief aid or just do traffic watch in the morning and be off by 10 a.m. Uh, there were so many different things. I mean, the Goodyear blimp, I know the the pilot, Taylor, she flies the Goodyear blimp all around the country. A helicopter pilot, there's jets, there's propeller airplanes, there's all sorts of things. And nowadays we have so many drones and unmanned aircraft. So it was just a, a world that I had no idea uh, was so vast. And I thought, okay, this is great. I can get paid to travel. And this sounds, you get well paid. It, it sounded like the dream job. And I um, went back home, said, hey, mom, I want to be a pilot. But of course, I'm 14. And when you're 14, you want to be something different every hour of the day. And so my mom was, uh, though very supportive of me, she said, okay, that's nice. You know, pass the peas and didn't really know how to guide me on that path. And uh, so I had to figure it all out on my own. So I held on to this dream. I went to university because uh, that was the one thing my parents did understand is we don't really know if you even meet the physical requirements of being a pilot, but if that whole thing doesn't work out, you should have a backup. And so therefore you have to go to college. Oh, but by the way, you know, you're the first of the four kids going off to college. So you got to figure out how to pay for it. So I had summer jobs to help me cover college. I ended up being a resident advisor so I could get my housing covered. And then I was able to save over four years. Uh, while I was at UC San Diego, about $20,000 to help me with my private pilot rating. So after I got the rating, I wanted to gift myself for, um, for, for just accomplishing something that had been a, a dream of mine for almost a decade. And, uh, and so I looked for a pilot's watch and I looked for a pilot's watch made for ladies. And in 2006, there was nothing, absolutely crickets. So that was how I started my company was making the first pilot's watch for ladies. So before we get into the more technical side of how does one start a company that makes pilot's watches for ladies, I'm curious to know what you would attribute your drive to. This is driven behavior, is it not? Very much so. There could be a uh, something in the DSM that describes how I just blinders and zoom in on something, hyper-focus on something. But that's just always been something that has defined me. I'm very good with deadlines. So when I decided it was a Christmas dinner, I was with a bunch of lady pilots who also had, it came up in discussion. We were talking about what we wanted for Christmas. And one of the other women had stated, you know, I've always wanted a pilot's watch and nobody's ever made anything. And I said, huh, that's weird. I was looking a few months ago when I got my private and I noticed that nobody made anything. Is this a thing? And they said, oh yeah, no, 6% of the industry is female pilots. So nobody's going to make a, a watch for such a small market. And uh, if you're starting a business, then you're probably doing some market research to determine if you're going to sell that product or that service. And uh, when you read 6% of female pilots um, or 6% of pilots are female, it's not a very good market to uh, introduce a product to. But I was 22 at the time. I had no idea what market research was. So I um, said, okay, well, if I started this, then if I figured out how to make a watch, would you ladies help me design the first two models or, or the first model? I didn't even know at that point if I was going to start off with one or two watches. And they said, yeah, sure, no problem, kid. And they were all very seasoned pilots, and I was the young one that just got her private. And so I set a deadline of my birthday the next year, which was November 3rd, and I had to figure it out. If you want one word that you can basically start any business with, it's Google. I Googled everything. I looked for manufacturers. I looked for where are the best watches made. I looked for how to get a website made. I looked for how to process credit cards. Do I just accept checks? I mean, all the things that that didn't really exist today. We've got Shopify and we've got so many, I mean, Facebook marketplace, you can run an entire business on Etsy. There's so many different choices that we have now, but this was back in 2006. 
I didn't have any of those choices. So I just kind of had to figure it out as I went, but I love the challenge and I love being proved. Uh, I love proving skeptics wrong as well. So when I was asking for friends and family to invest in me, I had uh, actually had one investor give me $5,000. He was a friend. And when I paid him back five years later at 10% interest per year for five years, which are pretty decent terms, um, especially this was 2006, 2007. So if you remember the 2008 economic crisis, I was actually his best investment. He lost way more money in his other investments, but he couldn't get his money back until 2012, right? Five years later. And that was my terms for everybody. But he, uh, he said, you know, you were actually um, a bet that you would fail. And I was like, really? I wish you would have told me that at the beginning because I would have doubled your money. I wouldn't have just given you 50% back. But it is something that I, I love a good hard deadline and I love somebody telling me I can't do it. Uh, you put those two things in front of me and I'll figure out how to get it done before the deadline and I'll I'll do it better than you ever thought it was. It could be done. Did you make your deadline that you had for uh, yourself, for your birthday? We launched on November 3rd, 2007. That's the uh, anniversary of the company. It was also my tw my 22nd birthday. Uh, it was also when I got my commercial pilots rating. So I went further with my flying and got my instrument rating and my commercial rating. And I had also been, uh, I was just starting my first flying job. And uh, my first flying job was a demo pilot for a company called Cirrus Aircraft. They're a small propeller airplane with a parachute built into it. It, it was one of the best days of my life. Ooh, that one's a really tough one to match. Has there been one since where you've thought, oh yeah, this one is a good close second to best day of my life? Oh, the day I got married, my husband is my better half, my everything. He's a wonderful, wonderful person. And I am so lucky to have met him. That's so beautiful. I'm so happy to hear that because we're talking about a female-led, a female-built business and the stereotype may well be, oh, yeah, they're very for-women, pro-women, anti-men. But clearly this is not the case and that is a beautiful balance. Thank you for saying that. Definitely. And it's funny. I mean, he comes to all the shows and there's, oh, I don't know if I should even say this, but you probably know kind of the old culture of trade shows and exhibitions where you have what's called a booth babe. It's a horrible <laughs> term. And they often have beautiful women standing by cars at car shows, things like that. And uh, he and I have an inner joke that he's my booth babe because he's the only man <laughs> at our booth when we go to the Women in Aviation Conference or when we go to a watch show. And uh, what is interesting, too, is that he's so confident in himself and he's so confident in me that a lot of people assume he's the one who started the business. So they'll say, oh, did you start it? Or, or they'll ask me, did he start it? Or did you two start it together? And he'll be like, nope. You got to talk to her, got to talk to the boss. And he's just a, a gem of a human being. I've never met anybody like him. Oh, that makes me so happy to hear. That's beautiful. Tell us about the, the first launch. Like when you, now you have your watch, you've created your dream watch. And how did it go? Like, were people receptive? Were people like, what was this? How long did it take to kind of get momentum? Tell us about those early days. So I knew that this would work. I wasn't trying to start this company that I would end up running 18 years later and, and probably for another 18 years as well. I really was starting this to make watches for my girlfriends and I that were at that Christmas dinner and figured if there were other women who flew airplanes who wanted a watch, great, I've got an option for them. Uh, I came out with two styles originally, the Amelia and the Jackie. And Amelia came in black and white with a black or white leather band. And then the Jackie, which is one of the watches I'm wearing right now, uh, came in a, a pink dial, a white pearl dial, and a green pearl dial. So in total, it was kind of like having five watches that you could choose from. Um, but uh, it was just these two styles. And I I wanted to be a pro pilot. Like I, I, I wanted to go fly airplanes, end up getting into the big jets, and just kind of having this side hobby on, on the side here. And um, when I realized, oh my gosh, this might be a thing, I actually hadn't even launched the business yet. So one of my girlfriends who I'd gone, uh, done a summer job with, she was one of my original investors. She gave me $500 to help me start my company. And her name is Margie. And she was at a party 
in Los Angeles somewhere. And she met this woman at this party who was a pilot. And she's like, oh, my friend is starting a female pilots watch company. You got to get one. And they looked, there's no website yet. I don't have any of the product yet or anything, but their parents, this woman's parents contacted me because I guess this woman had went and talked to her parents about it and said, this is what I want for Christmas, not knowing anything about what it was going to look like. And the parents sent me a check and I still have the check. Um, they sent me a check for $400 and they said, when you figure out what the price is, then just uh, tell us what we owe you or, or refund us the difference or whatever it is. And site unseen, website unseen, business not built, nothing launched. And here I have a check based on the word of a friend at a party. That's when I knew, wow, this could be something a lot bigger than what I think it could be and what I thought it would be. And uh, sure enough, it's grown into something huge. Tell us where you are now then. How many employees? How many models of watches? How many styles? Let's go. Put it on the table. Let's see. All right. Um, I'll work backwards. So styles. I've got eight core styles. Amelia, Jackie, Elise, Catherine, Marina, Jane, Jordan. And which one? And which one am I missing? Oh, no. You have too many and children. One more. <laughs> <laughs> one more. <laughs> uh, Nadia. Uh, and uh, out of those styles, I've got probably a span of around 50 SKUs. So different colorways, metal bands, leather bands. We did limited edition pieces as well. So my other wrist, I always double wrist. I wear one watch on each wrist. This is the Las Vegas uh, year one race watch that we released during Formula One last last year. And, uh, and that was limited to 40 pieces only. So I would say probably with the limited editions, we've released close to 60 different watches. Also accessories, so watch winders if it's an automatic uh, or uh, link removal tools and little things to just help you adjust the watch perfectly for you. Um, straps, there's all sorts of uh, silicone, leather, metal, gold, rose gold, uh, different materials that you can change out your watch strap with. And then uh, for employees, let's see, I've got, I want to say right around a dozen so um, we've got everybody kind of, there's half that work out of home and half that work in the office. And uh, we of course hire more during the holiday because it's just a busier time. And then we do a lot of events. So I have a, a pool of about 30 women that I reach out to for events. If you want to go to a dive show or you want to go to a car show or you want to go to a watch show or an aviation show, then uh, let us know which shows. Here's our roster for the year. And uh, I don't hire salespeople for those shows. I hire people that are part of those industries. Because when somebody comes up to you at a dive show and says, oh yeah, my BCD failed on me while I was 60 feet underwater and I had to use the octopus over for my buddy, you need to know what that language is. And if you're a diver, that makes perfect sense to you. If you're not a diver, you have no idea what any of that just meant. So it's really, really pivotal that I have, just because of who my customer base is, these are women who really are pushing limits in their jobs and their hobbies and doing some very out of the box things that are not so much their minorities in these industries that they work and play in. So I need to have women that are like-minded and that's who works at our shows. So uh, that pool of 30 plus the solid, I'll, I'll, our baker's dozen, our, our sweet 16, possibly. We might have like 12 to 16 people that work full with the company. Wow. I think that's a brilliant strategy and something that people should listen and pay attention to because sales is a thing that we all kind of get icky about anyway. And I don't believe that you need to be a salesperson. It's about talking the language and creating relationships. And I think that's how you build something great. Like what you're doing is one relationship after another. You mm -hmm. just said your whole launch started with that check was purely from a relationship. Somebody trusted somebody's word. Exactly. That must have felt amazing. Like blind trust in you, blind trust. Totally. But you both have a, a really good background in marketing and you've probably heard the saying facts tell stories sell. Have you ever heard that before? Yes. That is like hands down. That's a mantra. 
for my life and uh, for my company, especially. And it's true when you're telling your story and, and a salesperson can reiterate facts all day long, but if they don't have a dive story at a dive show or a, a story of their first flight at an aviation show, that's not really going to sell a pilot or a diver. But when you start telling stories with people or hearing their stories and you understand what their stories are, then you're selling. And uh, the details on the watch, those just tell you the facts. And Abingdon, you also have a non-profit uh, a contribution to society arm of your business. I see that just by the very nature of it being a female-led business, you are also an advocate for equality and representation, but more than just gender. Is that correct? And, and tell us a bit about your foundation. Yes, uh, the foundation started on the 10-year anniversary of the company, so in 2017. And uh, what we do is we provide um, scholarships and uh, we actually call them sponsorships because a scholarship is typically handing a check out to somebody and, and having to pay for something. What we're doing is we are inviting women to a leading industry conference in a STEAM industry. So STEAM being science, tech, engineering, arts, and mathematics. And what we want to do is we want to introduce them to the people that will help them with their either career or hobby. It doesn't need to just be career oriented. It could be uh, if a passion of yours. If uh, you don't want to race cars for a living, but you love everything automotive and you want to get into that skilled trade side and maybe just know how to uh, do an oil change on your car and uh, you win the sponsorship, then we will bring you out to the SEMA show in Las Vegas and introduce you to everybody in the automotive and skilled trades industry that could potentially help you. So that's something that we've done uh, since 2017. I misspoke. We've actually been doing that since 2014, um, but it wasn't formalized under the nonprofit until 2017. So we've given out um, probably close to around $200,000 in sponsorships where we'll cover your airfare, we'll cover your hotel, we'll cover your registration, everything. It's a fully paid trip. So we do that. And then uh, we also have these brilliant books, which are uh, activity books for kids that are STEAM focused. So uh, you can buy them on Amazon and it's $9.95. They're, they're paper. They're for 10 and below or 10 and above. It says the two age groups that we have. And that $10 goes straight to our, our scholarship fund. So that's been the nonprofit. And and truly, I had somebody who could kind of guide me and hold my hand when I was between 14 and 21, when I was getting my pilot certificates, it would have made all the difference in the world for me. Um, I don't know if I would have started a watch company, um, but I definitely would have just gotten ahead of what was happening in the industry or where I fit in or or all I really had was just what those guys were, were saying in high school to me. I didn't have any other resource available because I just didn't know where to look. So being able to provide that for these young women has just given me such a sense of purpose with the business. And then, of course, the proceeds of the sales of the watch also contribute to those funds. And when you buy a watch on the website, you have the option of putting in a donation to the foundation if you want. So there's a lot of different ways that we can support and just bring up this next generation of go-getters and incredible women that are going to be doing amazing things. What a win for equality, right? Not something that's been talked about for quite a few years now, but it's a lot of talk. And here we are talking to someone who's actually doing something very proactive for equality. And I love that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what you do. And thank you for who you are, because I think it's super inspiring. And um, as a mother of a daughter, I, I want to see her be able to do whatever she wants, whether it's fly a plane or scuba dive or all those great things, um, which I'm terrified of both of them things. So <laughs> it's, it's not for me. That's okay. That's okay. But I would like to know, like, this all sounds incredible. Your story is incredible. But we all know that the journey is not always so easy. And there are pitfalls along the way. And we like to ask our guests on our show, sort of what have been the tough parts? What have been the the downsides of being an entrepreneur? Has there been a moment you're like, okay, I quit this watch business. It's too stressful. <laughs> There's always something. 
I've had customers make me cry. When I started, I was packing watches out of storage unit. Um, I kind of set up a little table like a desk and had like a little tiny printer right there in the storage unit. And that's where it started. And some of those days when you're in a Christmas holiday season and the one person that you hired to help you was sick with the flu and you're sitting in a dark storage unit until 10 p.m. getting uh, boxes together, it is that is not glamorous at all. I kind of say that in jest, but if there's not a week that goes by that I don't want to quit, then I'm I'm not pushing myself far enough, right? So the interesting thing about growing your business is when your comfort zone is just kind of around you, if you haven't stepped out of that comfort zone, how is it going to get bigger? And uh, every step I take with this company, I am constantly bringing myself out of my comfort zone, but with the intent of making it bigger. And it is uncomfortable. It it uh, makes me nervous when I have pitch meetings, when we were raising investment last year for a million dollars, I'm pitching to people to say, hey, the starting investment is $50,000. I started my entire company with $40,000. I was asking friends and family for $500 minimum. And now I'm saying, sorry, the, the start is $50,000 if you want to play. And that's different. That's uh, something you get used to. But now my threshold is, all right, well, if you want to play, we're going to be introducing a, another a B round later on this year. And $250,000 is going to be where we're going to start. So I'm going to have to step out of my comfort zone and start talking about that you know, and, and get used to it. And there's a, a lot of other things that don't come natural to an entrepreneur, because a lot of times we do think we're only confined by what's between our two ears, right? And when you start talking to other entrepreneurs and you realize, oh, wow, omni-channel selling where I could sell through TikTok shop, through Facebook marketplace, through Etsy, through Pinterest, through Shopify, through Instagram shop, through Macy's, through Neiman Marcus, through the Army Air Force Exchange, and then 500 colleges around the United States. Do you see how that progression just starts to change how you think of where could I put my product and how many more people could I reach if it were in those places? Well, when I started out, I was only thinking about the one place. And now I have to think about all the other places because that's where we are. And it uh, constant kind of almost an internal and external battle because you still want to keep growing, but you also don't want to grow too fast to where you implode your own company. And you want to make sure that you're growing in the right direction. That's the thing. I mean, we tried on eBay for a while and it wasn't amazing. We're actually trying it again through a retailer now because they've offered this new program just for watch brands and certified brands. Uh, they introduced it last year. And so we're going back into it. But when we first tried eBay five, six years ago, it was a disaster. And uh, there was a year in 2016 that I thought, oh my gosh, digital marketing is the way to go. What am I doing going to all these trade shows? They're expensive. There are a lot of logistics. I got to hire people all the time. The ROI, uh, return on investment is maybe one or two X. Like it's, it's not very good. And digital marketing, you can get five X. Amazing. Well, I almost bankrupt the company after a year. It was our worst year since our first year of business. <laughs> and we we're almost nine years later. If you don't try certain things and learn from your mistakes. And uh, and if you're not wanting to quit every week, then maybe you're just not pushing yourself far enough. What a beautiful answer. I have to ask, what keeps you on track? How do you know whether a decision is going to keep you aligned with your vision or it might take you to the wrong or a different path? That's a tricky question because it kind of depends on what part of the business you're talking about. So like with a, a new hire, for example, um, there's a, a really good saying where it says hire fast, fire faster. And uh, that's something that took me a long time to learn. Um, I really thought, oh, well, I can just teach that skill. Gosh, they have a great attitude, but I could, you know, or it was the other way around. Man, what an amazing watchmaker. I love having it, but geez, their attitude sucks. That one has been probably one of the most challenging is when to know how and where to grow your team. So my re retail account manager, I wouldn't, I have to overpay her. I have to give her gifts. I have to tell her how much I love her because I have to figure out how to make her 
um, live forever. She's my number one and she does a great job and I can leave her. I don't even need to talk to her for a week. And I know that she's doing what she needs to do. So that's just been a blessing. And I've, I've worked with her now for about eight years, she's been on the team. And, but then you look at uh, what shows maybe to do. Recently, I started doing watch shows. Now, this is kind of funny because I'm a watch company. So shouldn't I be doing watch shows already? No, I didn't do my first watch show until 2022. <laughs> so it's kind of strange. But you were mentioning at the beginning that uh, the watch industry is predominantly men's, a men's industry. And here I am making watches for women because women are the afterthought in the watch world. They're never put a watch isn't designed for women typically it's designed for men first and if that watch does very well then let's just make it pink shrink it they, they, that's the saying they pink it and shrink it and put diamonds on it and then we'll sell it as a woman's watch and that's going to sell and uh, I don't know about you but that does not sell to me that doesn't appeal to me at all I'm wearing an all black red watch here and then I'm wearing a pearl white steel watch and I love pink, but I don't love it as my only option. So, uh, so the watch industry, I've never considered as the place that I should be marketing to the, the industry where my customers are, they're not at watch shows. That's 90% men go to watch shows and they bring their girlfriends and their wives and their daughters, hoping that those women will get into watches like they're into watches. And this year we've been, well, last year we went to three watch events and I'm probably not going to go to all of them again this year. It was a heavy investment last year, probably close to around $40,000 to attend three events and uh, staff it and the hotels and the logistics of flying out there and all that. And I figured I'd give it a try. But this year I'm kind of thinking, well, we're definitely not doing that one. That was a bust, but maybe we'll do the other two. And that's just uh, something that you have to constantly calculate. Do I have the money for it? If it did bust, are we going to be okay? And you just kind of have to, you tiptoe, right? It's it's not jumping head first into the pool. It's walking in very deliberately and making sure that you're not going to freeze to death or you're not going to boil over. You know, you you just kind of got to got to wait it out and see how it happens. And if we do go to these two watch shows this year and they end up not doing how I need them to perform in order for us to come back another year, then I'm going to take my money and I'm going to put it elsewhere. So our big experiment this year, and I try to, to kind of answer your question about how do I stay on track is I have a goal for every 12 months. And last year was uh, retailers. So we signed up with Neiman Marcus and Macy's and a few other major retailers. Um, and then we also tried the watch shows and that was kind of our, our big experiment of 2023. This year, we're going to conclude our trade show experiment with the watch shows. And then we're going to look into TikTok uh, and Instagram influencer marketing and really get heavily involved on uh, the social media side, but from an influencer side, not so much from like paid advertising side. So uh, we're talking with a bunch of influencers. By the way, I don't give out watches to influencers. They have to buy a watch first. And I should, probably shouldn't even be saying this on the podcast this is kind of giving away a secret. But if you've invested in the brand, then I know that you're worth having a conversation to because you believe in the brand, you bought a watch um, then you will, will assess your social media and you might get, you know, reached out by me and I'll invite you in to become an influencer with us. We'll do the whole compensation and everything at that point, but I'm not giving out free watches to anybody because they're one, they're expensive to make. And uh, I can't just hand them out to everybody. But two, what I've found is that when you hand something freely to somebody, they don't treat it with the respect and reverence that you wish that they would. Um, but when they buy it, they have a vested interest in it. So that's just my personal approach to it and how it makes me sleep at night better for my company. As a marketing person, that is absolutely the right approach to doing it because inauthenticity is obvious. So if someone's just like, look at this great new watch that I've got, and they're bragging about it, you can tell when that's fake versus you will not believe this new brand that I found. I'm, I'm obsessed. It's my favorite thing that I've ever owned. You can tell the difference in how they react. So I think that's the right way to do it. 
I love that you're talking about all the experimentation you do, because I think that's a piece of marketing that more people need to understand that it's an ongoing experimentation because there's no one size fits all. There's no like, this is the trade show you have to do and you're going to make your millions of dollars there and that's it. It doesn't exist and it's going to change and it's going to change over time. It's going to evolve. Like you said, digital marketing, things change and evolve over time with marketing. You've got to continuously experiment, but having the right attitude about your bandwidth and knowing this is what we're spending on marketing versus throwing everything at the wall and like that can be dangerous, but being really, really smart about it. It's really good advice, especially for anyone starting out, trying to figure it out. There's lots of free marketing you can do out there, people, the social media and stuff. You could start out with very, very little. If you're just bootstrapping it, you can definitely start out with little and just keep building over time. I'd like to know what's your definition of success? Are you there? Do you feel successful? Are you still growing towards that? Tell us. This is going to sound bad, but I don't like that word. (laughs) I don't think there is a definition that describes that word. It's not an impotent word. Success for me this month is different than what it was last month. And it's going to be different next month. And it's going to be different next year. It's a constant flux. So at the end of the day, if if I wake up and I can stand up and I can wiggle my hands, my fingers and my toes, and I can hear you and I can see you and I can speak and talk to you, I'm starting off well. And that to me is success. Anything beyond that is just a blessing. So I hate to answer that question that way, but no on success. (laughs) Some people love not defining it, but striving for that goal. And I do think goals are very important that I'm very much driven by deadlines and goals. And if I hit a particular goal that I've set for myself this year, I will consider that goal successfully attained, but I won't necessarily ever consider myself a success. I don't know if I would ever be a success. That sounds kind of sad, huh? But I think I'm doing good and I think I'm making a difference. I would rather make an impact with my crew members, my customers, the scholarship winners, and the people that wear the watches. Because I do think that with this brand, it's taken on its own life in a way that I've had customers say they wore their watch going through a bad breakup and it reminded them that they were part of a tribe of really strong women and it helped them get through that. I've had women uh, who've gotten into helicopter crashes, car crashes, survived, and the watch was on their wrist at the time, and it also survived. There's been some really, really strong stories about women who wear this product. And because I think having the woman's name on each of the watches, it's kind of like having a friend. So when somebody sends in their watch for like a battery change or or just a repair, they'll say, how is she doing? When do you think you'll be able to ship her back? It's like you've kind of separated from your friend. Um, and if that continues to happen and my customer service stays on point and I'm still making a high quality product that help, that holds up with the customers that wear them, then maybe we can start defining success. I love how you describe the experiences that your crew members, your um, your family of customers has. And that's the strength to a brand. And I think that's the the holy grail that a lot of large companies are chasing. They want to create that sense of belonging, that that connection with their customer. And it's very apparent to me just from looking at your website that you've achieved that. And no doubt you're wanting to continue building and growing on that. But that's where you see the stories of Apple demand and people lining up for two days before something is released, a new model is released. That's that demand-driven branding. So what do you think that created that for you? I think it probably helped that I am my own customer. So I really started off the entire company listening to my peers. And though it started in the aviation industry, when I was looking for a pilot's watch, I wanted certain things. I wanted Greenwich Mean Time displayed on the watch because that's how we get all our weather reports and our logs and everything. I wanted it to look feminine, but not necessarily girly. I wanted uh, a flight computer that was rotating around the bezel that would be a backup to my instruments uh, in the plane, should I ever have a, a failure on my instruments. And then 
when I spoke to the women that I was a member of this organization called the 99s, the, the ladies at that Christmas dinner, I really listened to what they said when I made the prototypes and I handed it to them and they gave honest feedback. Tell me if you hate this. And they gave me some great feedback and I watched them play with the watch and, and try and turn things that didn't turn and try and do certain things with the watch that it didn't do that. Or they were struggling, twisting the crown. And I realized, oh, the crown is too small. I need to make it bigger because our fingers need to grab it. And so just observing was just critical because if you're going to make a product, if you're going to start a, a consumer product business, then you could make the perfect thing according to you, but the second you put it in front of a potential customer and you put it in front of 50 potential customers, you are going to learn so much just watching them try and figure it out. And you'll make a better product that way. I am so fueled by the negative feedback of a prototype because that's how I've made all eight watches is uh, eight, eight of the styles is I'll ask women come in, be a part of my test pilot group. I'm designing a new watch, sign this NDA, and then let's start designing. And I always ask customers, a lot of customers, we always follow them on social media. So if you're a diver and we want to come out with a dive watch, then I'm going to reach out to you and say, hey, would you like to be a part of a team that designs the next Abingdon dive watch? And if they have the time to do it and they want to do it, then they're in. And then I'll see how they interact with it. I'll send them a prototype after it's built and I will not give them any instructions. And I want to see if they can figure out how to work it. Because how many times do we all read the instructions? I think only maybe 15% of the world actually reads the instructions that come with anything. So it's really key that I make a product that is a technical product. Like you have to know how to set the time or how to set the date or how to use the world timer or how to use the diver's puzzle. But you won't read about it. You won't watch the video manual that we have on our website. Um, you just want to figure it out because you get really excited when you open up that box and it's shiny and it's beautiful and you just want to take it out and put it on your wrist. That's the exciting part. And so the last thing people want to do is start reading instructions. So I want to make sure that when they get um, the watch in hand, that it can be used without instructions. And so every design that I do and every watch that I introduce, it's a constant um, feedback from the customer, from the crew member. When people ask me, oh, are you the designer of the watches? I say, if it's a woman, I say, no, you are. And she is, and the both of you are. We work off of the Google accounts for business and we have a drive folder, a folder in their Google drive that is just customer ideas. And it goes all the way back to 2008. Every idea that we've ever been given at a trade show, we'll keep a pad of paper out. What do you want to see on the next Abingdon watch? If we get a negative comment on some Facebook ad that says, you know, this should really be X, Y, Z. I'll tell you a quick story that I'm so baffled. If you're in the watch world, you'll be like, oh my gosh, why does this happen? And you'll see on our watches, we change something critical that has been done for decades. And I don't know why watch companies do this still, but on a GMT watch, a GMT watch is a 24 hour clock, right? Um, I was talking about it on our YouTube channel and one of our watches, it's called the Elise, has a GMT function on it. And when you look at the red numbers on the GMT uh, hour markings on the on the dial of the watch, it has the number 24. So it's one, two, three, four, all the way around to number 24, which is where your, your 12 is and on the dial. And this comment said, Ugh, I don't see, I don't get why watch companies always put 24 when military time is always double zero. And I'm a flipping pilot. I work in the 24 hour clock all the time. I have been using double zero since before I ever even started a watch company. Why did I not do that at the beginning? And it was just something that has been done and accepted in the watch industry that you write the numbers one through 24 on a GMT watch. And so I responded to the comment and I said, uh, you just changed the design of every GMT watch that I will ever introduce. It will always, for now and forever, be double zero. Thank you. And the commenter then made another comment reply like, oh my gosh, really? <laughs> and sure enough, if you go on our website, any GMT watch now has double zero because that is how you talk in military time. You do not talk and say 24 o'clock, 2400 hours or whatever. It's, it's double o.
So yeah, I incorporate the feedback people give me. Okay. That's like giving me chills. Like, oh my God, can more people please pay attention to what <laughs> Abington has just said, please, please. It's, it's about that customer service and that customer listening, right? Mm -hmm. Like people don't have the humility to just listen to their customers enough. They will tell you everything you need to know. That's brilliant. I love that. That's really cool. I had okay. somebody at a, one of the watch shows that we went to last year come up to me because the watch industry had no idea uh, who the Abingdon company was and was like, what? You guys have been around for 16 years? And uh, and I was like, yep, we've been kicking butt. We've been doing good. And they're like, oh my, how do you have 50 styles? Like how uh, women are buying these? And we're like, uh, yeah, a lot of them. And one company said, how, how are you selling to women? Like, what's your secret? what would you do? Like, how do you do this? And I said, well, I listen, I listen to them. <laughs> I kind of said it a little bit, maybe crass, but I think they got the point. And then I asked them, I said, how many women do you have on your team? And, uh, you know, zero. So I was like, maybe you want to start there. Don't listen to just what she has to say and don't let it just be your wife because, or your daughter or somebody who loves you because they'll give you filtered feedback but bring several women on your team, bring several women of different ethnicities, different ages on your team and see what they say. And then go out and, and see what other women think about it. And at that point, there was one company who had a 36 millimeter watch. And the one I'm wearing on this wrist is 42 millimeters. And the one I'm wearing on this with 40 millimeters. So these are big watches. Theirs was a 36 men's watch millimeter. And they said, oh yeah, this, we're thinking of coming out with a women's watch, but we'd have to redesign the case and this and that and the other. And I'm like, how big is that watch? And they said, oh, that's a 36 millimeter. And I'm like, uh, you don't think a woman could wear that? I'm wearing a 42 millimeter right now. And I said, why don't you just do a photo shoot with women wearing that watch and see how it does? You'll probably get a pretty positive response. And they hadn't even thought of like, oh, wow, I can have an existing product and it could be on a woman's wrist or a man's wrist. I mean, when you look at watches, watches are genderless. It's a woman's watch if it's on a woman's wrist. It's a man's watch if it's on a men's wrist. And even though we market to women because women are left of the conversation in the watch world, we're always an afterthought. We have tons of men who wear our watches. Julio Macias, he's got, I think, like 1.4 million followers on social media. He was wearing his Jordan, Abingdon Jordan watch on the red carpet. Kim Estes, there's a lot of male celebrities. There's a lot of men who wear an Abingdon watch because they just like the watch. So it's not rocket science. <laughs> You've just touched on another really important point in marketing and in business success. Sorry to use that word, but not sorry. Mm. And that is... Niching. You are very much a niched industry, a business in a male-dominated industry. You've chosen to service women, and we we understand that. What you've just said, though, is you still have so many men, celebrity men, wearing your watch on the red carpet and beyond. And I think that's just a point I wanted to highlight because often our listeners will think, oh, especially if they're early stages of business, I don't want a niche because I'll leave out a sector of people. What you've just demonstrated is that it doesn't matter how strong you lean in on a particular niche, you'll also get the wider market. You don't lose anybody by doing that. Absolutely. I think you can help me out with the saying, but it's something like if you market to everyone, you sell to no one. I would very much encourage anybody who's looking at starting a business or who is in the early stages to niche down as much as you possibly can. And uh, you will find that you will have a huge, huge market just in that niche. I mean, when I'm looking at women in the military, women who race cars, women who scuba dive, women who fly airplanes and do all the things, women who do more, as our slogan is, uh, we've got billions of women who do that um, around the world. So I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> and you're still getting the guys. Good on you guys. Um, <laughs> they're fantastic watches. So I did want to touch on, you'd mentioned your, I uh, just did a round of investment seed funding, I guess it is. That may not be the correct terminology. And then there'll be a second round um, starting at 250,000. So that begs the question, what is the vision? Where is the company going? You are looking at uh, the early stages of what the Abingdon company will become, which will be 
a Swiss Army knife meets a Chanel. So if you imagine those two brands together, that is what the Abington company is going to grow into. And are okay. you staying with watches or are we branching out to other products? Watches definitely are going to be our focus, much like Amazon's focus at the beginning was books. And uh, when I went on Shark Tank in season six, that was one of the forks in the road that we were trying to decide is do we go into maybe the travel and accessory industry or do we stay with watches? Travel and accessory industry being sunglasses, small leather goods, passport holders, things like that, uh, even onto luggage. And we could continue with kind of the aviation theme of the company. But what we opted to do was stay more in the watch world. At the size of the business at the time, uh, we'd probably done it about half a million in sales at that point. It was easier to stick with watches because I know exactly the suppliers to use. I know exactly the cost. I know exactly the margin I need. I knew all of those things. Uh, if it were a titanium or a steel, if it were a leather band or a Swiss movement, I, I could tell you all of that at that point. If I had to go and discover all those answers to those types of questions for sunglasses and leather goods and luggage and all the other types of products that we were considering bringing to market as I pitched to Shark Tank, because I couldn't pitch to Shark Tank and say, I'm making pilot's watches for women. This is great. They're going to be like, are you kidding me? And so I needed to show them a bigger company. And so we opted to, just through my mentors and people that helped me start the business and help me grow the business, um, we figured it's actually a lot smarter of an idea to just build out the watches um, because we know how to make a watch. We know how to sell a watch to keep the company going, all of that. So that was then. Uh, but as I say, if you're going to see a Chanel and a Swiss Army knife combined, then there's a lot more that can be offered through the company. I am excited to learn more. Uh, yeah, okay. All right, we'll leave it there. We'll leave it there. Um, <laughs> gotta ask, because I'm a big fan of Shark Tank. Did you get an investment? What happened? Tell us the story. I didn't get an investment. So I am swimming without the sharks, as uh, as we say. And They're lost. They're lost. <laughs> I still do uh, run into Mr. Wonderful every now and then because he's very big in the watch world. Damon ran FUBU and that's a clothing company. And so one of the things that he was making this, in my opinion, a silly argument, but he built a very successful company, the apparel. Then after a brand comes out with like an apparel, then what they'll do is they'll come out with like a vodka. And then after the vodka, they'll come out with a perfume or a cologne. And then after that, the last ditch effort to keep the brand going is a watch. And I'm like, what? That doesn't make any sense to me at all because I'm pretty sure Michael Kors is doing pretty well and that's not how he did his thing. So Damon just didn't believe in it. And then uh, Mr. Wonderful did have an offer that he presented. His offer was ridiculous. He is ridiculous. And so I countered uh, with the, bringing him up for a flight in a plane and uh, doing some aerobatics and keeping the doors off and, and banter between the two of us. But he was a different business. Um, Lori loved the watch I and mean, she was wearing the Jackie and she thought it was absolutely stunning, high quality, well-made. Um, but her businesses that she invests in watch the show, then you know, it has to appeal to the, the kid to the grandma. It's a product that would go across any age, any group. She always invests in businesses that just have something that's a, a very universal um, type of business. And then Robert Hershevec kind of was the same way that Mark Cuban was, where he was saying, I really love what you're doing. Of course, Robert has daughters. And he's like, I want my girls to, to grow up with this mentality. But he's like, I'm in computer software tech. This is not my jam. So love what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. I would not be a good investor for you. So I didn't get any investment when I was on the show. Um, but that said, uh, like I said, I, I met up with uh, Damon at an event uh, here in Vegas a few months ago. 
I've been talking to his team, to the Shark Group, and uh, I run into Mr. Wonderful, uh, to Kevin O'Leary every now and then because he's just so involved in the watch industry and a lot of my friends are in the watch industry. So we have a very similar circle. It's all good. And honestly, if you ever pitched, you're going to work harder than you ever have worked before because you just don't know what's going to happen. I mean, it is, it's very strange when you walk down that hallway and you stand in front of the sharks, you have to stand there for like two minutes and they don't know who they're looking at and you know who you're looking at but you have to stand there silently for two minutes while all the cameras do this like circle around and create that dun 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 drama with the music and and you just have to kind of soak it all in and when you pitch that's real like it's totally reality tv unedited there are some pitches that have gone for four or five hours and there are some pitches that go for four or five minutes and you just have to be on your A-game. So I needed to not look like a fool on national television. So I prepared as hard as I possibly could and it really restructured my business at a pivotal moment because this was back in 2014. I was capturing every female pilot wanted and Abing didn't watch. So I just couldn't keep going because I was going to end up running out of female pilots to sell to. I needed to ship the company somewhere and Shark Tank uh, preparing for that show helped me do that. I do encourage, it took me four years too, by the way, to get onto Shark Tank. I had applied four years and it was the fourth year that I finally got on. Oh, wow. So tenacity. Yeah. I think the preparation for that had to have been so beneficial. Oh. Just like you said, for your company, just for the the direction, like you would have to be so focused in on what you were doing and saying and sharing. And you could use that pitch Anytime you're anywhere at any conference and right watch show or whatnot that you're at. Absolutely. The power of a good pitch. We do appreciate that. Don't we, Vicki? For sure. So Abington, we'd love to know who would you want to invite to a dinner party from the past or present? Someone you haven't yet met. How many people can I invite to this dinner party? I would like to invite uh, Queen Elizabeth II. I would like to invite Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and I would like to invite Amy Winehouse and Sarah Blakely. Oh my God. What a conversation that would be. Yeah. Some of the most fascinating people. I just would have loved to have had conversations with them. All of them. Mm -hmm. I, I probably still can with Sarah. The others I cannot. Yeah. She's amazing. I really am um, very impressed by her. I thought you were going to say Amelia Earhart. No, I wouldn't kick her out of the dinner. Absolutely not. <laughs> she can come. But if I were to bring an aviator, I would want to bring Poncho Barnes. Uh, if you've never heard of her, she was flying around the same time that Amelia Earhart was flying. She was married to a minister, but she wasn't religious. It was something of like an arranged marriage. On Sunday, she would take her plane and barnstorm the church just to piss him off. And she was most likely a lesbian. And she just... Through Caution of the Wind, she was one of those women that you just could not figure out and was not of her time at all. Pancho Barn was a riot, a riot and a half. Or uh, Bessie Coleman. Bessie Coleman is, here's an interesting thing about Bessie. She is the first African-American pilot, not African-American female pilot, the first African-American pilot. And how she learned how to lie, this it blows my mind, but she was doing hair. Um, she was a hairdresser. And one of her clients uh, talked to her about flying and she got really interested in it and wanted to pursue that. But of course, learning how to fly as an African-American in um, the early 1900s was pretty much a no-go. Being a Black woman and learning how to fly was definitely a no-go. So what she did is she bought a, a ship, a ticket on a, on a ship and shipped herself to France, learned French so that she could take lessons because they taught black people how to fly in France. And then after she learned French, got her pilot's license, she came back and started doing exhibition air shows, loops and barrel rolls and things like that, and displayed all of her skills showing off uh, what she could do in an airplane. She ran mail for the post and uh, as a job. And uh, the craziest way, they didn't have seatbelts in airplanes at the time. So during one of her air show performances in a loop, she fell out. Carol Hobson, she's a pilot 
for an airline. She wrote a book a couple of years ago about Bessie's life called A Pair of Wings. And it's a beautiful book. It's an absolutely wonderful book. I highly recommend it. Bessie Coleman or Poncho Barn. I'd probably have first over Amelia, but I wouldn't. Uh, no, Amelia's got a seat at the table too. Absolutely. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Of course, we are called resilient entrepreneurs. So we always like to ask the question, what is resilience to you? And how does one become resilient, in your opinion? So every 10 years, I get a tattoo. And I have them in places that you can't see. The last one I got, I actually shaved the back of my head. So it's under my hair. Um, I just turned 40. So I love that resilience is part of this podcast because my next tattoo that I'm getting here in a few weeks is uh, all about resilience. It's a willow tree bending. And one of my favorite quotes about resilience is about the oak and the willow tree. And it says the oak fought the wind and was broken. The willow bent when it must and it survived. And I think uh, resilience is about being bendy. It's Charles Darwin also says this when he was looking uh, through the fossils and, and just through um, who survived and, and which animals went extinct. And the ones that were not necessarily the strongest, but were able to adapt to their environment were the ones that survived. And so I think resilience is all of that. It's about bending. It's about adapting. It's about changing course when you need. Um, it's about survival. And it's not so much about digging your heels in and saying, this is the way it must be because this is how I think it is. It's about saying, well, maybe that's not the way it should be. Maybe this is what life has planned for me. So resilience, the the next tattoo I'm getting is a willow tree and I'm going to get it underneath uh, where my watch band sits. And so that's how I treat resilience. That's perfect. And it's a perfect place to end this incredible conversation. Thank you so very much. Here's to the disruptors. Here's to the women doing all the amazing, great things and women like you that celebrate them with beautiful watches that are functional. Oh, beauty and function married together is my absolute dream. So I appreciate it so much what you're doing. I'm super excited on your next stage of Swiss Army Knights, Knife Meets Chanel. Oh my God, I love that so much. And I thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this conversation. It's been enlightening and fun and my cheeks hurt from smiling and just appreciate all of it. You're a gem and thank you so much for joining us on Resilient Entrepreneurs. It's been an absolute gem. I would love to come back anytime. I had a blast with both of you ladies. Thank you for having me. Yes. Thanks so much, Abington. Take care.